changing how Texas funds its public schools, next on the K-12 Engineering Education Podcast. I'm Pius Wong. We engineers are supposed to have been trained to analyze, understand, and solve pretty complex problems. But one big system that I did not understand is school funding, specifically public school funding here in Texas. The news is rife with stories on Texas education these days and how its funding model just isn't working. I spoke with several people who could help me understand the problem and maybe how Texas will find solutions. This is Donna Howard. I am a state representative for House District 48 in Travis County. Donna Howard is a state representative in Central Texas who knows a lot more about the state budget and how it gets made than I do. Howard is serving her fourth term on the Texas Appropriations Committee in charge of the Texas budget in a subcommittee handling higher education and public education. So she could help explain to me how school funding here has become so thorny. School finance formula is a fairly complicated formula, and uh, over the years, it's had a variety of band-aids applied, making it even more unwieldy and difficult to understand. You know, we are are a great big state with over 5 million students with a wide variety of types of school districts, and trying to have a one-size-fits-all with certain adjustments to it has created this very complicated formula. That being said, I've previously served on a school board at the end of the 90s and got very interested in school finance at that time and began to work on kind of a public education campaign, if you will, with some other folks on a nonpartisan basis across the state looking at uh, chambers of commerce, League of Women Voters, that kind of of group, Mm -hmm. to talk about how we could better understand how our schools were being financed because I and others felt that that was going to be necessary for any change to occur. So trying to frame it in a way that made it uh, simpler to understand uh, was what we were trying to accomplish. And uh, since I've been at the legislature, I was first elected in 2006 in a special election, which uh, brought me into the legislature midway where I had to start off in a special session dealing with, of all things, school finance. Mm. Um, And so it's been a continuing journey, if you will, to try to figure out how to parse this down into some kind of an understandable system so that people can actually lobby and advocate with their elected officials to make decisions that will be in the best interest of our public schools. So what is happening? How, How does Texas fund our schools now? And yeah. how? what are the changes that we're considering? Well, we have had a shared system where uh, the state puts in a portion of the funding and the local property taxes, uh, taxpayers put in a portion of the funding. Probably decades ago, the state's share was the most significant part of that partnership, maybe upwards of 60 to 80 percent. Over time, it became kind of a, an established idea that it would be an equal partnership, 50-50, although some could still argue differently. But bottom line is, uh, when I came in in 2006, the changes that we made at that time were to bring the state's share back up from about, it had eroded to about 35%, to bring it up to closer to 50%. Now, when you think about 
that kind of a partnership with a multi-billion dollar uh, program, you're talking about a significant amount of dollars. So the real issue here is for the state to maintain a 50% share means that there has to be some kind of guaranteed revenue stream coming in from the mm -hmm. state to help support that portion. Um, the way the formula is set up, it's a, it's a, a disincentive for that because as property values rise and as property taxes therefore rise, the state's share by virtue of the formula is allowed to decrease. So over a period of time, you erode the 50-50 share. As, so over this past decade, as the property values have gone up in our state based on uh, our growing urban and suburban areas, but also based in, in the rural areas, uh, especially with fracking and the oil and gas industry, uh, we have seen significant increases in local property values and property taxes. So right. over the decade, that 50-50 that, uh, share is eroded again to where it's now back down into the 30s. So why are people proposing to change that uh, today? Like It sounds like you want to bring it back to that 50-50 share. Yes. I mean, I think uh, there are, uh, there's a lot of um, talk at, at our town hall meetings, a lot of talk in the media uh, about uh, Texans' concerns for their ever-increasing property taxes. Mm -hmm. um, some people have uh, expressed that this has priced them out of their homes, out of their businesses. Um, as, the, as the property values and taxes have gone up, at the same time, they haven't seen any increase coming to their schools, which is the way this formula works as it's set up now. So there's really two challenges here. One is I'm paying too much in property taxes, and two, I'm not seeing any change in my schools because none of that money is staying in my schools. Mm. Um, so so there has been an outcry from uh, across the state and a lot of different types of communities uh, about how this is unsustainable. Um, I, part, you know, you got to go back, of course, to the assumption, do you expect a, a partnership here uh, in a system that does not have a personal income tax uh, and only relies on sales and property taxes? The state only collects sales taxes, does not collect property taxes, so must find a way to ratchet those down through putting certain controls on what the local districts can do. It, it, you see it starts to get very complicated yeah. there, but uh, you have to, I guess, go back to bottom line. Are you expecting the state to maintain uh, half the share here? And if so, where is that revenue going to come from in order to reduce the reliance on property taxes to fund a greater share than most of us expect property taxpayers to have to pay? Um, and so really, that's the big challenge right now is you could probably get agreement from just about everybody that, oh, yeah, 50-50, that sounds like a good share. But what you can't get agreement on is where is that money going to come from in a way right. that doesn't overburden any one segment of our society? That's exactly what was going to be my question you were touching on. Where will that money come from? Are we coming to um, a conclusion? Are, is, are our legislators coming up with a plan to kind of decide where that money is going to come from? You know, um, we're much better at talking about what the problem is than coming up with the, the solutions in wow. terms of money. But I'll tell you what we did in 2006. Sure. Uh, at that point in time, uh, the, the local school districts had the ability to uh, tax up to $1.50 per $100 valuation 
for their the maintenance and operation of their schools. What the legislature did was reduce that number from a dollar fifty to a dollar, a whole third reduction in in the property tax rate. The cost of that reduction was fourteen billion dollars because we have a two year budget, so it would be you know seven billion dollars per year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a fourteen, we had to come up with a way to find fourteen billion dollars to replace that reduction in what we would have been getting from the property okay. taxes to cut them by a third. Uh, what was voted on was three things that were included. One was uh, a liar's affidavit, which is, has to do with uh, used car sales and would bring in a negligible amount, but that was part of it. Uh, raising the cigarette tax by a dollar. I think it was 47 cents, and it was raised to a dollar forty-seven, is my recollection. The third major thing was a revision of the business franchise tax that was uh, – uh, a, a plan that was proposed by a Blue Ribbon Committee that Governor Perry had appointed that was headed by John Sharp, who's currently the chancellor of A&M, but a previous comptroller of the state. Um, so there were multiple businesses that came together and, and agreed upon this new franchise tax that would lower the rate but broaden the base of who would be charged these taxes. Um all three of those things were put in place, but would only raise about $8 billion, as I recall, of the $14 billion. So it was expected that Texas was going to continue to see a surplus, which would fill in the rest, just general GR, general revenue coming in, like from sales taxes. And so that worked a little while until we had a downturn in the economy, and right. uh, mm-hmm. we didn't have enough to, to fill the whole uh, gap there. So we reduced the amount of school funding by about $5.4 billion in 2011, and we've never caught up with it since then. Wow. Um, as, as property values started to go up again and continued to decrease the amount the state owed, the state took advantage of that and rather than at least maintaining the status quo, uh, used a portion of the local sale, property taxes coming in for schools, used a portion of it to pay for other parts of the state's budget. So now I've entered into this conversation another issue. So we've got the fact that property taxes are are too high, the fact that no more money is coming into the schools, Mm -hmm. and now the fact that some of the property taxes that are being paid dutifully by the taxpayer on their tax bill, it says for schools, not all of that money is actually going to schools. So the state is in a real dilemma here as as taxpayers and citizens have learned more and more about this and are making demands of us, but the big problem is, so how are we going to pay for it? Does Texas have money to pay for all this? Not right now, no. Um, hmm. the, the, if we're, if we're going to keep income taxes off the table, which uh, you know people say Texas does not have the DNA for that, right. but I will tell you that uh, – just for the sake of discussion, because I think you know, having anything on the table, we need to talk about whatever is available to talk about. The The Constitution requires that if indeed uh, the voters determined that they wanted an income tax. Now, i got to say that the legislature is the gatekeeper that would have to vote to let you vote on it. But if the voters voted on it, which they're required to do, and said they wanted an income tax, two-thirds of that would be required to go to reducing property taxes, and one-third would go to public education. So, in fact, I think people are not aware of of this, that if indeed they wanted to use that as an option, 
it's built into the Constitution that that must reduce your property taxes and the rest of it must go to public education. But as I said, that there's not a willingness of the legislature to consider that. So what is being looked at is small things, actually. What can be? Some people are talking about raising uh, sales taxes, but we already have one of the highest sales taxes in the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, some are talking about looking at our sales tax exemptions to see if there are those that have outlived their purpose and could be eliminated so that more revenue would be coming in that way, certain tax loopholes, if you will. There's, of course, going to be constituencies that will have a lot of debate over what's useful and what's not. Then the only other real thing that I think does have some merit that I'm very supportive of is something that our comptroller has proposed, and that's the creation of a new fund using some of the so-called rainy day dollars, uh, which is the the actual name of that fund is the Economic Stabilization Fund, so the ESF. Uh, take that's expected to have $15 billion in it in this next biennium, taking some of those dollars out, several billion dollars of those out, and investing them in a in a permanent fund, if you will, that would spin off dollars. So you're making dollars off of dollars without taxing anybody anything. Over time, that would build up uh, using those uh, those funds from what he's calling the legacy fund, using legacy fund dollars to pay for some of our underfunded liabilities like pensions, which are a a huge drain on the budget. Having a dedicated source for pensions, which would free up general revenue dollars to be spent on other parts of the budget, including public education. So there's there's some real dollars there that we could also talk about. But there's not anything that's being proposed at this point in time that has the the kind of large amount of of revenue that we're talking about. So my expectation at this point in time is you're going to probably see some incremental efforts to right. work back to a system where the state can try to ratchet up its share over time. Um, the concern of some of us that are uh, supporters and advocates for public education is that the the effort by some to reduce property tax load may take precedence over making sure that more dollars are coming into public education, which we know are sorely needed to be uh, as i said we haven't uh, we haven't even recovered from the two thousand and eleven budget cuts at the same time that our population is growing mm-hmm. that uh, we have more and more needs as uh, the demographics have shifted, and we have a greater number of economically disadvantaged students, a greater number of English language learners. We are expecting that we will have a curriculum that prepares our students for the jobs of the future, actually the jobs of today, but especially the jobs of the future that, that are going to require more investment in STEM education and coding and making sure that students are getting the basics they need to be prepared for these jobs. That requires a certain amount of investment as well. So we're expecting more, but not paying any more to get there. And so that's our big challenge right now. You've really clarified how complex this is. What should uh, the general citizens out there, your constituents and people just in Texas or even outside of Texas, if we're concerned about public education and, and adequately serving our children and our kids, what can we do? No, you know, I think as as time consuming as it is to understand these issues, the more that you understand it and the more that you 
make your voice heard to your elected representatives, the more we're going to respond. Um, there are a lot of groups out there that are doing the homework and the legwork on this that you can plug into, uh, public education advocacy groups who have all kinds of available information to try to um, condense this to some understandable uh, package that you can under, you can look at, that you can share with others. Um, I think uh, joining in with any of those groups, letting them tell you when to send letters in or to come testify, but bottom line is you need to talk to your elected representatives and make sure that they know what your priorities are here, what you uh, want to see happen, and that that though we talk a lot at the legislature about holding our our teachers and our students accountable, that you as the public are holding us accountable to take care of what we've been tasked with doing. We are sent here to represent you. We are sent here to help find solutions. And I am pleased to say that I think there is more of a bipartisan effort this time to do that. Uh, but there are so many challenges, and and I have to say, quite frankly, uh, that, that some of my colleagues who are, are in uh, areas where they have um, – they have more of a challenge with their elections because they're being held to some very conservative standards that say the state the state should be doing no more and should actually be cutting funds. They need to have they need to have the support from their community that says, "Hey, we want you to solve this," and we don't think that just saying no is the answer. We've got to find some solutions. So, I, I absolutely hope you'll be weighing in on this. All right. Well, Representative Donna Howard, thank you so much for speaking. And uh, absolutely really appreciate it. Thank y'all so much. Donna Howard's office sent out an infographic on social media some weeks ago, summarizing how school funding worked in Texas over recent years. You can find a link to it in the show notes for this episode. How does the public change public education? Like in an engineering problem, all the stakeholders in this school finance problem might need to get involved in the solution. I spoke to one Texan to find out how that could work here. My name is Colby Monig. I am a political consultant. I own my own consulting agency here in Austin, Texas called Blue Ocean Strategic Solutions and a former Texas legislative staffer. As a legislative staffer, Colby Monig has seen a lot of how local politics gets done. She spoke to me about how to shepherd ideas from the public through the legislative process. Um, I think most importantly to realize is that, you know, these legislators are, are just human. They're human too. And it's important in order for us to have a representative de- democracy that our constituents that, that meaning us, that we are involved in the process. You know, we have to be informing our legislators how we feel about certain issues so that they know. You know, they want to hear from you. It's how uh, they know how to vote on legislations. And if their constituents don't give their input, then they're just guessing as to how their district feels about an issue. And honestly, a lot of legislation starts from a constituent visiting the legislator. Um, I can tell you that as a staffer, I've had many meetings with different people from the communities that had different life experiences than the people in the office or the legislator themselves. And we get a lot of really good bill ideas that way. 
because you have a unique perspective and it's important to tell personal stories whenever you talk to your legislator. You know, and education is really, really important right now. You know, we have been underfunding education at less than 40%. It should be at 50%. And with the new property tax caps that are coming in from, you know, Governor Abbott for the second session in a row, um, those pieces of legislation um, were actually initiated last session, um, and he made them a part of his state of the state last session, and again this session. Um, And I think that there's just this fighting amongst uh, local control and the state blaming it on the cities and the cities blaming it on the state. And it can get really confusing because all of the funding formulas for education have not been updated in quite some time. And we just keep putting band-aids on it and just making it more and more complicated with copper pennies and bronze pennies. So, um, and I'm sure a lot of listeners won't even know what that means. And I, I don't know if that is by design, um, but I think that we can all have thoughtful conversations on this. And um, I'd like to remind the listeners that the only reason why education funding is a main topic this legislative session is because constituents were so loud about it. There's a saying in politics, and it's the squeakiest will gets the grace. Why are constituents loud now? Um, I think that with social media, it's really helped um, bring light to different issues at the Capitol. Um, And then just all all the talks of classroom sizes are really big and our property taxes are going up. And in the economy right now, people are really struggling. And then they're opening up their tax bill at the end of the year and they're going, wow, my property taxes went up a lot and my school is still underfunded and the system is just broken. And, uh, you know, we we really need to shine a light on it right now and really focus and work across the aisle together because this isn't a bipartisan issue. Um, You know, Republicans and Democrats have kids in school. Um, Republicans and Democrats are struggling with paying their property tax bill. And so I think it's really important that you know, we all sit down around a table and we, we get this done for our kiddos. So Colby, I was wondering if you could help us understand what people like us specifically can do, maybe not even necessarily teachers, but just anybody who's interested in the education of people in our community. Uh, you mentioned having in-person visits. How does one even do that? Like, do you just call up your representative? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, all you have to do is first you need to find out who represents you. Um, so if you don't know who your local elected officials are, it's a quick Google search, who represents me, Texas, and it's going to bring you to a website. It's the FYI page of the legislature, and that is uh, www.fyi.legis.state.tx.us. And or you can just Google it um, and you just put in who represents me, you put in your address and it's going to tell you all of the all of the people that represent you at the Capitol, um, including State Board of Education. And it's important to know, you know, I'm just going to throw this in there, too. It's important to know who your county commissioner is um, all the way down to local level, your city council representative, who your mayor is. 
all of that is really important. But once you have identified who your state legislature representatives are, meaning your state senator and your state representative, those are the two elected officials mm-hmm. that work at the Capitol. Um, those are the people that are in session right now and are voting on legislation and writing different legislation uh, for passage. And so it's pretty simple. All you have to do is find out who they are and then go to their member page. Um, again, that's just a quick Google search as well. Um, and they have their phone number on there and their email on there. Um, I would suggest calling and just asking to schedule a meeting with the legislator or with a member of their staff that handles education. Um, especially in the, on the Senate side, they have very large districts and so they have very large staffs. And so um, you just call and say, hi, my name's Colby Monig. I am a constituent of Senator Watson, who is my uh, state senator. Um, and I'd like to set up a meeting with the senator or the member of the staff that handles education. And it's really that simple. And they'll get you on the calendar and you go in um, and we can kind of go through what that looks like, too. Yeah, I was like. wondering, what, what does that do? Because some people who I've sp- spoken to, they say, oh, I want to do that, but I feel like it's just going to go into thin air or they're not really taking my opinion into consideration. So what actually happens when you communicate with our representative? Yeah, you know, I hear that a lot, too. And it was really surprising to me whenever I started working in the in the pink building, um, that the legislators and their staffs are taught to listen to their constituents. And whenever you do go in, whether it be a phone call or an email or an in-person visit, they actually have something called a constituent management system. And I've, I've had many, many meetings as a staffer and uh, you know, you get about 15 minutes with that staffer. And, and I want to remind everyone that just because you're meeting with the staff and not the senator or representative themselves, um, don't be upset about that um, because they do communicate back to the member uh, the kinds of meetings that they've had, as well as inputting it into a management system. So once you ha- once you um, express your voice to the member, you are on file. Um, and then the next time you call, you they, they're going to pull your file up and they can kind of see a history of how many times you've called, what you've called about, what's important to you. And they actually log that digitally. And it says how many constituents have called in favor of a piece of legislation or uh, against a piece of legislation. And before they vote, they actually look at that. They say, you know what? I've had 45 members of my community reach out to me and ask me to vote yes Mm -hmm. on this bill. And no one has asked me to vote no. And I don't know a lot about this topic. So guess what? I'm going to vote yes, because that actually does sway the way that they vote, because at the end of the day, they want to get reelected. And it is a representative democracy. And they uh, are going to listen to their constituency. Yeah, I've heard that, that the metrics are are pretty important. Does it ever happen where a representative kind of goes against those metrics? Yeah, I will say that. I would say that on really fringe issues, um, when you know that you have a certain representative and they feel strongly on a fringe issue, and a fringe issue, for example, would be gun safety, um, abortion, um, things like that. But What's really cool about education is it really is a bipartisan issue. And so this is not necessarily a fringe issue. Um, right. 
except for to maybe a few members who support school vouchers and things of that nature. But education, um, I can tell you the way that the legislature looks right now is not a fringe issue. And they are really trying to hear from their constituency and talk to teachers. Like teachers' voices are so important at the Capitol. So who you are when you come in might make a little bit of a difference. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, if you are actually in the classroom and experiencing these large class sizes and having to go into your own purse and, or into your own billfold and, you know, pay for markers and binders for your class, um, you really yeah. do have a unique perspective. You know, these legislators are putting on suits and voting on legislation every day, but they're certainly not in the classroom. We do have some former educators, luckily, which I think is very important. And I think it's very important for teachers to run for office because we do need more voices down there like that. Um, And so until that happens, I think, you know, teachers definitely have a major, major impact on, you know, the legislation that gets passed pertaining to education. You see, whenever we have teacher retirement day, the halls are flooded with teachers and legislators love that day. They love to hear from teachers. So I really do think it's really, really important. And if, if going into the office intimidates you, you know, this is, it's a big, scary building, you know, and Mm -hmm. downtown Mm -hmm. Congress and there's security and it all looks the same and it's super easy to get lost. Um, You know, you can also just call them. And the more you call, the larger your file gets and the bigger voice that you have. Because if you're calling frequently, um, you know, the, the person who answers the phone is going to be your new best friend, you know, like, oh, hey, Colby, good to, what's going on today, you know, and you're, you're almost going to feel like you know these people. <laughs> I imagine that maybe you spoke to people who, who were very emotional, too. I, I, isn't that a challenging relationship to be talking to constituents who are really passionate about issues? Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and the poor interns when they answer the phone and they're like, oh, I need help with this one. You know, they're really emotional. And um, it, it's a very emotional thing. You know, politics affects you in every single way possible, whether you're involved or not. So I just employ you, please, please get involved. Your voice is important. You uh, talked already about some of the things that might prevent someone from communicating with the representative, even though there's benefits to it. That some something like fear might prevent them. People might say, "I don't really know what to support in education. That's why I don't talk to my representative." Or they might say, "I don't have the time to go call or to go talk to my representative downtown." So this lack of knowledge, or this lack of time, or this fear—all these things could stop people from communicating? How do we get over that? That's an excellent, excellent question. You know, I would say that with social media nowadays, you can find different groups. Um, You know, there's different PTA groups. um, There's different teacher groups that are politically active. And they really are, they hire people to focus on the legislative session and to really bring it down in the layman's terms and put it on the one pagers. Um, the Texas Tribune is an excellent, excellent publication. It's nonpartisan, and they really tackle these really big issues. And you can read a quick two-minute read and understand it a little bit better. 
Um, you know, you don't have to go for an in-person visit. You can give them a quick call. You can shoot them a quick email. You know, they, all of that does go into the system. So it doesn't really matter how you're reaching out. It's just that you are reaching out because, you know, in order for us to have a representative democracy and uh, for our legislators to actually represent the communities that they are elected to represent, we need to tell them how we feel about things. Yeah. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, if you don't communicate and if you're not involved, then you don't have a right to complain. Hmm. One final thing is that uh, it's pretty clear that this whole issue of education funding in Texas and outside of Texas is kind of complicated. It's probably rare, I would think, that in any individual person, teacher or not, knows exactly how to find a, a solution that works for everybody. So uh, is there anything that citizens can do to to help legislators or help you or any any politician in this with this power? Anything we can do to help them come up with that solution? You know, I think it just goes back to being involved in the whole process and, and talking to you, your legislators. I said, I said earlier that a lot of bills that we got actually came from ideas with people in the community. They came and said, you know, we've got this issue. I'm not quite sure how to fix it, but it's a problem. And then you leave it to the experts and the staffers and the legislator to say, okay, well, you know what? This is the problem and this piece of legislation will fix this problem. That was political consultant Colby Monig, and you can find her online with the handle at BlueOceanTX or at the website BlueOceanTX.com. Monday, March 11th, around noon, several education unions and their allies rallied outside the Texas Capitol building in Austin, calling for increased pay and a wide array of additional support in schools. There were chants, speeches, and some common opinions on and off the record. That was Sybil D. Hunter speaking on the podium. Hunter has been a food service worker at Houston Independent School District for 14 years, and she is also a local union representative for school support personnel. When they announced that they were giving a raise to the teachers, that's fantastic. But they specifically let it be known that that's the only people. No clerks. Okay, why not? We're all school district employees, and we all deserve a raise. Without one department, the others don't work. Everybody has an important job to do, and for them to say something like that, it made me feel like, number one, they were trying to divide the employees and the unions that have us fighting amongst ourselves about something like that. Hunter and others at the rally were talking about a proposal from the legislature that came just a few days prior to give Texas teachers $5,000 raises. Another attendee summed up their feelings. I mean, we do. We need more money. I had a motto. What was my motto? What about us? That's, that's our new motto. What about us? 
Many retired educators were there to push for reform across the board. Patty Edgington was a math teacher for 35 years in Brazosport. Um, Texas is kind of at the bottom in taking care of their teachers, and it's time we get to the top. And I think we finally have uh, some people in the legislature this year who are willing to go beyond party lines and uh, get past the rhetoric and realize that teachers need to be taken care of or we're seeing our future go down the drain. And if you're talking about STEM, then you know that particularly in the math and sciences, we're losing a lot of good teachers to places they can get better jobs. Even some teachers whose heart is in education, but if you can't support your family, then you got to go someplace where you can support your family. So it's time for the state to step up. Retired teacher Mary Gomez, also from Brazosport, wants teacher pensions reformed. And I'm here because I would like to see as a retiree our pension. I've been retired five years and it stayed the same. Cost of living hasn't. And so I would certainly like to see an increase in our salary, our pension salary. Barbara Monte and her colleagues explained their reactions to current proposals by the Texas legislature. We don't like merit pay, we can tell you that. We went through that with something called career ladder in our, in our, uh, in our careers. And probably all three of us were on the career ladder and got the extra $3,000, $3,500, whatever it was. But it doesn't work because it, it doesn't promote a team effort. And um, we don't want to see us go back to that. We need an across the board, not just for teachers, but paraprofessionals, counselors, nurses, bus drivers, cafeteria workers, everybody is underfunded. And uh, we don't support merit pay at all. So. And you all are nodding your heads in agreement, it sounds like. Merit pay is not a th- That's a thing I've been hearing. Yeah, yes. we went through it. Yeah. We lived through it. We, yes. yeah, we've gone through that. So. <laughs> And it, it doesn't work. It's, it's, um, it's trying to quantify something that you can't quantify. And um, no matter what researchers do out there, it's, it's great in theory, but it's pie in the sky when it's boots on the ground. And if you had any of those pie in the sky people come and spend six months, six months in a school day to day with a teacher, they would see exactly what happens. And you another know? thing, the testing, the state testing isn't meant to give people raises. It's meant to be a diagnostic tool so that we can help the students identify their needs and pl- make plans for how we can remediate or enrich either way. And, um, and somehow it has turned into this yeah, merit pay basis where it was never meant to be that. I caught Linda, a former principal, as she was leaving to take her bus back home. Uh, educators work very hard. They're very dedicated. They spend so much of their own personal funds to support mm. what they need to do in the classrooms immediately. But we want the state to I'll, I'll support us. We want, the, we want the state to support the uh, funding, not put it on the burden of the school district to, to provide funding. A common refrain from many was that they were here to fight for students. A group from Lone Star Community College around Houston didn't want to be recorded, but they emphasized how they thought K-12 education in Texas is being shortchanged today. And they see it when their own students are less prepared for college. Another group came from the other side of the state to talk about student needs. 
My name is Adriana Martinez and I'm a counselor at a high school in El Paso, Texas and I work for the Socorro Independent School District. And also as a counselor I just feel that we need support for our students as far as uh, class sizes and also um, mental health care is a big thing is what I'm seeing in, in students coming by with high rate of anxiety. So we need support. We need support systems in place to help us out with that. And so Texas hasn't really supported these needs before or not enough? Not enough. I can say they're headed in the right direction because recently we got uh, Project Vida, who is an LSSP personnel in the district, in, in our school specifically. We're a, a, a pilot project program, and we're one of the schools of, I think, I believe a few in our district that have uh, welcomed them to support us in the need for reaching our students in the mental, uh, emotional status. So they're headed in the right direction, but we need a little bit more support. And that's why you're here? Yes, that's why I'm here. All right, thank you so much for sharing there was much to discuss. Right after this lunchtime rally, many of the union members and supporters streamed inside the Capitol building, slowly going through security to meet with their government representatives. Thank you to all of the people who shared their thoughts for this podcast, including Representative Donna Howard, Colby Monig, and the Marchers at the Texas Capitol. You can find links to many of the things mentioned today in the show notes for this episode. And as always, you can find more information on the podcast website, k12engineering.net. Go check it out. The K-12 Engineering Education Podcast is a production of my independent studio, Pios Labs, in Austin, Texas, where I support many different engineering and education projects like this one. Go to patreon.com slash Labs to support my show and donate today. Help me continue to learn about the big stuff that's happening in education and in engineering today, in Texas, in the USA, and beyond. Send me a message about it on Twitter, on Facebook, by email, or through your digital channel of choice. I'll try to read it as soon as I can. As always, thank you for listening and tune in next time.